Well, it's good to be with you guys this morning. You can turn to Genesis chapter 1. We'll be there in a little bit. My name is Blake Jennings. I'm the teaching pastor over at the Southwood campus. For those of you who don't know me, it's good to be here. I was watching the video of Brian preaching the last couple of weeks and I noticed things have changed here at Anderson. He, he wears jeans now and an untucked shirt. That's, that's awesome. I like how Anderson rolls. I didn't do that this morning because you don't necessarily know me real well, so I don't feel like I can pull that off. But one day... I aspire to be like Brian and preach untucked because that sounds awesome. Um, This morning, it's my privilege to be with you. We're going to continue our study of Genesis as we look at the issue of caring for creation. And the inspiration for this sermon, as we thought about uh, whether or not we should include this sermon, the reason that we're including it is because we have realized we live in a world that is in desperate need of wisdom. This world needs wisdom. Let me give you a few examples. Whoever thought it was a good idea to mix gumballs and bouncing balls in a restaurant dispenser for kids. That's a really bad idea. That, that lacks wisdom. That's going to put somebody in the hospital. These three little boys, they really lack wisdom. They needed it about 10 seconds before this photo was taken because the boy on the ground, his life is about to change really quick. Whoever the city planner of this town in Alaska, this person needs wisdom. I don't think mixing a bear crossing in a playground is a good idea. This man needs wisdom desperately. Desperately needs wisdom, yeah. Or somebody to take his keys away because <laughs> motorcycles and swords don't mix. Neither do bears, beers, and hot tubs. This guy needs wisdom in a hurry or that's going to work out bad. So that doesn't mix. Neither does a pool party, copious amounts of alcohol or electricity. These are college boys who are in desperate need of wisdom in a hurry. These two men need wisdom. I I don't even know what to say about that. (laughs) That's ridiculous. That's going to end up in the hospital visit. What was sad to me as I gathered these pictures was to recognize that there were no girls in any of these pictures. (laughs) This was all men. What's wrong with us, fellas? We... We often do foolish things. We live in a world that is in desperate need of wisdom. People often fail to bring wisdom to the challenges and opportunities of life. And hopefully that's where we come in. As children of God, we are called to be models of wisdom to this world. That's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 16, he challenges us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And in church, we often focus on the second part of that verse. Be innocent as doves, don't sin, walk in righteousness, obey God. That's good. You should absolutely do that. But sometimes we neglect the first part. Be as wise as serpents. Now, serpents, what's going on there? In the ancient world, snakes were the symbol of wisdom because snakes were so clever at evading capture. They were thought to be very smart. And so they became a symbol of a person who understands his world and knows how to think, speak, and act in it wisely. So Jesus is calling us to live out that kind of wisdom in this world, to be an example of biblical wisdom in all we think, speak, and act. And so this morning, what I want to do as we continue our study of Genesis, I want to take this morning to discuss how can we be examples of wisdom to the world in one particularly complex issue that our our world faces right now. It's an issue that you read about every day in the newspaper or, or online. It's an issue that dominates a lot of the political discussion in our country. It's the issue of the environment. How should Christians think, speak, and act 
when it comes to environmental issues like uh, global warming, climate change, uh, pollution, deforestation, loss of endangered species? How should we think about these things biblically? These are all issues that our society is very interested in. Our society cares a great deal about this. As of the latest data in 2013, 58% of Americans say that they worry at least a good deal about global warming. So whether you agree or not, what you need to recognize is you live in a culture where most people are worried, living in fear of environmental issues, environmental threats. And so we as the children of God, we need to be prepared to speak with wisdom to these issues, to demonstrate to the world what it looks like to live out biblical wisdom when it comes to caring for the environment. So this morning, I'm going to walk you through a couple biblical principles, two principles that God gives us in scripture that show us how to think wisely about environmental issues, how to think, speak, and act in a way that is wise when it comes to our relationship to the environment. So I'm going to walk you through these these two biblical principles. They balance one another. Principle number one is very simple. As we think about how we, as children of God, should relate to the world we live in, the earth and its creatures, principle number one we see very clearly in Scripture is we, God's people, should care deeply about the earth. God wants his people to care deeply about the world he has made and the creatures that live in it. He wants us to respect the earth and and care for it and about it. He doesn't want us to abuse it or ignore it. God expects his children to care deeply about this planet. And the Bible gives us five reasons why. Five reasons, according to scripture, why God's people should care deeply about the earth. So I'm going to walk you through these five reasons why we should care about God's creation. Number one is obvious, because God made it. We should care about the earth and its creatures because God made it. God created this earth. That was very clear in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. However God made it and whenever God made it, the clear fact of Genesis 1 is he made it. This earth didn't come about by random chance. It was not an accident. God didn't stumble upon this planet one day and think, gee, I should do something with this. God created the earth out of nothing. He created it with with wisdom, with power, with intentionality. He created it with beauty and variety. And so because God created this earth, we should respect it. We should treat it well. A, A parallel would be to think about My wife, when she makes a nice dinner for my twins, they're three years old, if they take that dinner and throw it on the floor, what does that say to my wife? Well, they have disrespected what she has made, so they disrespected her. They, They took for granted what she made. That is disrespectful to her. So it is disrespectful to God when we abuse or ignore the world that he has made. That's the first reason why we should care deeply for the earth is because our God made it. It's his handiwork. It's his creation. So we should respect it. First reason. Second reason why we should care deeply about the earth is because it belongs to God. 
this whole planet and, and everything on it belongs to God. That's the clear witness of scripture. In Psalm 24, uh, the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. It all belongs to God. Or Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the, Lord is, for the world is mine and all it contains, says the Lord. So everything in this world belongs to God. That's the second reason we should care for it. So let's, let's bring that home. Uh, at my house, I have a piece of paper in my safe, and there's a copy at the county clerk's office that declares that Julie and I own 0.2 acres in the south part of College Station. That is legally true, but it is not biblically true. So who does that 0.2 acres belong to? always has belonged to God, always will belong to God. My land is not my land. It's God's land. It always belonged to him. It always will belong to him. He's just letting us live there for a little while. So because creation belongs to him, we must take care of it. We must respect it. We must care deeply about it because it's not ours. It is his. To disrespect creation is to disrespect the God who owns it all. So that's the second reason why God wants us to care deeply about the earth. Third reason why God wants us to care deeply about the earth and its creatures is because God cares deeply about the earth and its creatures. The Bible actually talks a lot about that. That God cares about the world that he has made. He, he cares for creation. When we look at, at Genesis 1, we see that God created all of the earth in six days, whatever those days mean, however that works. He created the earth in six days and he finished creating, but every day thereafter, God continues to provide for creation. Every moment of every day, God is active in this world providing for the benefit of, of all the creatures and all the life that he has made. You see that in Psalm 104, which just to note, if you haven't read Psalm 104 lately, it's a really important passage to read and meditate on as you go through the book of Genesis. Psalm 104, it says that he, that is God, sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. What the psalmist is talking about is God's providential care for the world that he has made. God is watching over and providing for all the needs of, of this planet and the, and the creatures on it. So it rained a couple days ago. That was awesome. On Friday, we finally got rain. Biblically speaking, why did we get rain? Well, there were natural processes involved, clouds and storm fronts and all that jazz. But biblically speaking, the reason we got rain is because God decided it was time for us to get rain. God is sovereign over the earth. He providentially provides for all life, for everything on this planet. He cares deeply for the earth. We should as well. That's why it's not a surprise in Luke 12 when Jesus tells us, are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. God knows every single individual bird on this planet. Not just the birds in a general sense, but every single individual bird God knows and understands and watches over. Every single individual bird. Not just the really cool birds like, like the eagles or, or the hawks. Not just the really cute birds like the penguins. God cares about all birds. He watches over all of them. Even the common birds like sparrows. Your God watches over every single individual creature on this planet. 
So why should we care about the earth and its creatures? Because we believe in a God who cares about the earth and its creatures. He watches over them, protects them, provides for them every single moment of every single day. He cares for creation, so should we. That's reason number three why God expects us to care deeply about the earth. Reason number four, biblically, why we should care deeply for the world that God has made is because the earth reveals God's glory. That's what the earth was designed to do. This, this universe, this planet, and every creature on this planet were designed by God to reveal his glory, his splendor to us. So Psalm 19, we heard it earlier from Lance. Psalm 19, one through two, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. God designed the universe in such a way that, that it sings to us, it declares to us the glory of God. The world is our teacher. It teaches us about our God. It teaches us things about God so that we will know him and, and understand him better. So let me give you some examples. Actually, the Bible is, is full of examples. I'll give you a few. Um, first example, Isaiah 40. I love this verse, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. That verse never meant a lot to me until I went and camped at Enchanted Rock for the first time in high school. Has anybody camped out at Enchanted Rock here? Not a lot of you. You really, you all need to go camp out at Enchanted Rock. It's a couple big granite domes out in the Texas hill country. It is probably the prettiest spot in Texas or at least this part of Texas. So in high school, we went out and we camped out in Enchanted Rock and there's no lights anywhere around. And that evening we hiked up on the top of the bigger granite dome. And I remember laying down and looking up at the sky and I saw what looked like a cloud, a really wispy cloud that was really thin, but really long. It went from one side of the sky to the other. And I just sat there and, and stood and, and, and looked and stared at that wispy cloud. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, it's not moving. It's not a cloud. I suddenly realized I'm looking at the Milky Way, at the galaxy. I'm looking at the arm of the Milky Way. There are so many stars there, so many innumerable trillions of stars that it looks like a cloud. I can't even make out every star. And all of a sudden, this verse came to my mind. That's what Isaiah was looking at when he wrote this passage, because Isaiah lived in a world that wasn't full of artificial light. He saw the innumerable trillions of stars in this galaxy, and that led him to say, how great is our God, that he made all of those, and he knows them by name. He knows everything about every one of those stars. And I, it brought goosebumps to my neck. I actually remember that night because that touched me and, and affected me more deeply, honestly, than probably any worship service I've ever had in church. Because I saw I, what Isaiah wanted to say. I saw what this verse had to say to me as I looked up at the Milky Way. But what would have happened if the sky would have been fogged over with pollution? The sky would have been full of pollution, then I could not have seen what God designed the Milky Way to say to me on that night. It's a reason why we protect the environment, so it can speak to us, so it can reveal the majesty of God to us. Let me give you another example. So the starry sky reveals God's greatness. So does the ocean. 
Psalm 104 again. O Lord, how many are your works and wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There are there the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. The ocean and its creatures reveals to us the greatness, the wisdom, the power of God. But I love how the verse ends. I love the end of it where he talks about Leviathan. To the best we can tell in Hebrew in that verse, that's a whale. And, and the author, David, he's talking about how whales like to play, like to dance in the water. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Julie and I went up to Maine this summer for our anniversary. We got to go out on a boat and watch humpback whales breach. And that, I believe, is what David was talking about. These whales, we don't even know why they do it other than, hey, it looks fun. They jump out of the water. They, they play. They sport with each other. And what that reveals to us, what those whales reveal is not only is our God powerful, not only is our God creative, but our God loves fun. Our God loves when his creatures enjoy the world he has made. Whales reveal God's love of play, his love of enjoyment. So that should help us as we think about the issue of whether or not we should protect endangered species. Why should you protect an endangered species? Because when a species goes extinct, humanity loses out on an opportunity to learn whatever the unique thing was about God that that creature was designed to say to us. Pumpback whales go extinct and how will our children or our great-grandchildren get to see God's love of play demonstrated on the ocean surface? So creatures reveal the glory of God. All of creation reveals his glory. That's why God loves so deeply the world that he has made because it speaks to us about him. It is our teacher. It reveals to us the majesty and magnificence of God. That's why it's not surprising as you go through scripture to see that all of the great men and women of the Bible spent a lot more time out in creation than most of us. They spent much of their lives out there. David, for example, he spent almost all of his young life out in the wilderness tending sheep. And so on a daily basis, he saw the power and wisdom and beauty of God displayed in the mountain peaks and in the lush uh, hills and in the valleys. And that led him to, to sing, to create this song in Psalm 65, verse 13, he says, the meadows are clothed with flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy, yes, they sing. David is saying that creation is singing a worship song. Every day, the valleys, the mountains, the hills, they sing to us about our God. They teach us about how wonderful he is. Maybe we should be spending a little more time in creation. A little more time listening to the song that God has designed the world to declare to us about him. So that's the fourth reason why we're called to deeply care about this planet and the creatures on it. Because all of it is designed to, to teach us about God, to reveal his glory to us. Finally, fifth reason biblically why we're to care deeply for the earth. Because that's our job. It is our job to care for this planet and the creatures on it. Look at Genesis. Let's look at Genesis 1. Back in Genesis 1, verse 28, right after creating Adam and Eve, creating male and female in the image of God, God gives them a job description in verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, To subdue it, God is giving kingly authority to humanity. This is royal language, the language of kings and queens. So God is, is placing authority on the head of mankind to rule over the earth. But, but what is that authority to look like? How are we to rule over this planet? God tells us in chapter 2. So turn to chapter 2. Look at verse 15. This is how God wants us to rule over the earth. Verse 15 Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. As we think about ruling over the earth, subduing it, two verbs that God gives us. We are to cultivate and we are to keep. What do those words mean? Well, cultivate. To cultivate the earth means to maximize its fruitfulness. To cultivate, it means to to push back bad things and bring forth good things so that the earth is as fruitful as possible. That's actually what God himself does in Genesis 2. God is the first cultivator, if you will. In Genesis 2, God plants a garden. It's really nice. It's a really lush garden. Look at chapter 2 again. We looked at some of this last week. Chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. What Moses is telling us is that God was the first cultivator. He was the first gardener if you will. God actually uh, illustrated that job for us. He was a gardener before there were any other gardeners. He created this lush garden. That's what it means to cultivate. He took a desert land, a wilderness, and made it into a lush, beautiful garden. And then he placed Adam in it and said, Adam, do what I just did. That's what it means to cultivate. We extend the garden. We push forward that which is good and push back that which is bad. So ruling over the earth, first it means to, to cultivate it, to maximize the fruitfulness of this planet. Push back the bad, bring forth the good. That's the first word that, that Moses uses in verse 15. The second command he gives is keep. We're to cultivate and keep. And to keep in Hebrew, it means to guard or to protect Just as God protects and watches over all the life on this planet, so we're to do the same. We're to do what our Father does. We're to protect the earth, to guard it, to watch over it. Actually, a lot of the Old Testament talks about that. There are a number of laws that were put into the legal code, the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, that would encourage or or motivate the Israelites to guard, to protect the earth and its creatures. So let me share some of these with you. The Israelites were expected, number one, to, to take care of the land, to guard and protect the land that God had entrusted them. So Leviticus 25, two through four. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. The Israelites were expected to work their land for six years and then let their land lie fallow or rest for a seventh year. Now, they didn't really know anything about agricultural science. They, they did not know, scientifically speaking, that that's actually a really good idea. 
We know that today. We, we have shown, we've demonstrated through science that it's good to give a field rest so that nutrients can be replenished and that land can stay fruitful for generations to come. They didn't know the science, but God did. And so God legislated good land management upon Israel. He expected them to let the land lie fallow every seventh year. And what we need to recognize is obedience to that command required sacrifice, right? Because if that's your land, you are sacrificing one seventh of the profit you could make off the land in order to obey God. Well, that's often what it looks like to take care of the earth. We sacrifice short-term profit that we could make off of the earth for the long-term good of the planet. God cares about the long-range view, maximizing the fruitfulness of this creation he has made, not just for us, but for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book about how Christians should interact with the environment, pollution, and the death of man. And he wisely observed that human sinfulness often manifests itself in the environmental crisis in two ways, greed and haste. Greed and haste. It is not bad to farm the land. It is not bad to gather resources out of the land. It's not bad to use the land to provide for human needs. But it is bad when you use the land in a way that is greedy or hasty. That's bad. That's, that doesn't have long-term good of the land in mind. God wants us to take good care of the land because it's his. We should treat it well. We should respect it. We should watch over it. So that's the first thing that God has called us to do, to be wise managers of his land, to take care of his land. Second thing he called the Israelites to do was to take care of the creatures in the land. Watch over all those creatures who live in the land. God actually gave a number of commands throughout the Old Testament about how the Israelites were to take care of God's creatures. He cares about his creatures. We read about that, about how God cares about whales and donkeys and and sparrows flying through the sky. He wanted his children to do the same. And so as you read the Old Testament, you come across passages like Proverbs 12.10. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. What you want to see here is that treating animals well is a moral issue. Righteousness. It is a spiritual thing to take care of an animal, to watch over it, to protect it, to guard it. That's why God legislated throughout the Mosaic law how the Israelites were to care for the needs of their animals, especially their domestic animals. A number of commands about how you care for domestic animals. I'll give you a few examples. Deuteronomy 25.4. God says, do not muzzle the ox while he threshes. Okay, so the Israelites domesticated oxes to do productive work, to separate the the chaff from the good part of the wheat. And that's good. It's good to domesticate animals and use them for, for productivity, but it's not good to deny them the opportunity to eat. You have to allow the ox to pause and eat while it works. You gotta provide for the needs of your animals. Same thing, you see the same thing with how God wanted the Israelites to treat their donkeys. If you loaded up your donkey with a bunch of weight and it stumbled, you were morally obligated to stop and unload the donkey. If you whipped it or drove it, that was sin. You must take care of your animals. Another example, Exodus 23, 12, God says on the seventh day, that's the Sabbath day, you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest. 
God expected his people to give rest to their animals. That will require a sacrifice. You could make more profit if you drove your animals seven days a week. But God says, no, you got to take care of the animals of the land. You must give them rest. The Israelites were expected to treat domestic animals well. They were expected to do the same with wild animals. There are a number of commands about how they were to treat the animals that roamed wild in the land. Deuteronomy 22, 6. God said that if you came upon a bird's nest with eggs in it, you were allowed to take the eggs for food, but you couldn't take the mother bird. It's a verse about conservation. You had to protect the species, the health of that species of bird. You couldn't take the mother because it would go out and make more eggs. So you had to watch over the creatures of the land. Genesis 9, verses 3 and 4. God gives permission to Noah and to humanity to kill and eat animals. But he puts one limit on it. He says, you shall not eat the meat with the blood in it. It's actually repeated in Deuteronomy. Seems like kind of a strange thing to add there at the tail end. What's that about? Well, what God is getting at there is he is legislating that the Israelites and and his people, we are allowed to kill animals for food, but we must do it in a way that is humane. Don't kill it with its blood in it. What it's saying is don't eat the animal alive. Drain the blood in a humane way. They actually, in Deuteronomy, it spelled out exactly how you were to kill the animal in a humane and respectful way. The goal is to alleviate as much animal suffering as possible. It's interesting, when you look at the Old Testament, the Israelites took killing animals very seriously. They never did it flippantly. Never killed an animal merely for amusement or entertainment. They only killed animals for beneficial reasons, to provide food, to provide clothing, for the good of that species, or to eliminate a dangerous animal, or as a sacrifice for sin. It was only ever for beneficial reasons. And so what that means for us is God is telling us, it is okay to hunt. Some of you are really happy right now. It is okay to hunt, biblically speaking. It is okay to raise animals and kill them for food. But we must never kill animals merely for amusement. And we must never torture or cause cruelty to animals. Because God cares deeply about the creatures he has made. In fact, as God's children, we should do the opposite of that. We should do whatever is in our power to alleviate the suffering of creatures. So those of you students who are studying ag up at A&M, when they teach you how to kill a cow as painlessly as possible, that is a morally good thing. Because God cares about the cow and he doesn't want it to suffer. He wants us to treat the earth he has made and all of the creatures he has made in a respectful way. We're to take care of them because that's our job. We're to cultivate, bring forth the long-term productivity of the earth and we're to keep, we're to guard it and watch over it and protect it from harm. Take care of the land, take care of its creatures because that's what God does. So we should do the same. That led Christian biologist Ray Boland to say this. Love this phrase. As Christians, we have a responsibility to the earth that exceeds that of unredeemed people. We are the only ones who are rightly related to the creator, so we should be showing others the way to environmental responsibility. That's absolutely right. Christians, we should be in the lead when it comes to caring for the earth and its creatures because we're the ones who believe in the creator. We're the ones who believe that he made them, that they're valuable to them, that they display his glory, that they belong to him. So we should be setting the path, setting the example of how you wisely care for the earth and its creatures. 
Okay, so that's the first biblical principle as we look to the scripture to discover how we as God's people should relate to our environment, how we should think and speak and act when it comes to environmental issues. The first principle, very simple, is we should care deeply about the earth. We should care deeply about the planet and its creatures. God does, so we should as well. That's the first principle. That's half of the equation. The second principle that balances the first, that helps us to walk in the way of wisdom is this. While we should care deeply about the earth, we should care even more about humanity. We should care even more about humanity. This week I was looking at the website of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and I came across one particular blog on the PETA website that had this title, A Rat is a Pig is a Dog is a Boy. Well, the environmental policies of PETA make a lot more sense when you realize that's, that's what they actually believe. That is what they believe, that there is no value difference between a rat and a human child. They are all just creatures inhabiting the same planet, so humanity deserves no special privileges, protections, or opportunities. They equate all life. The Bible says no to that. The Bible disagrees with this idea. The Bible declares quite openly, a boy is not the same as a rat. They are infinitely different in the hierarchy of God. Or as Jesus puts it in Matthew 12, 12, very simply, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? We are not like the rest of the animals on this planet. In God's eyes, a human life is infinitely more important than the life of any animal. Why is that? Why is humanity more important to God than the rest of the life on this planet? A couple reasons. Number one, because only human beings are made in the image of God. We talked about that last week from Genesis chapter one. All the rest of creation is good, but humanity is very good. Because we alone are made in the image of God. Only we can relate to God. Only we can reflect God's glory through our moral choices. Only we can rule the earth on God's behalf. We alone are made in the image of the creator. And so we have inherently more value than any other living thing in creation. The first reason we're more valuable in God's eyes than the rest of creation is because we alone are made in his image. Second reason is because we alone are eternal. Out of all the things that God has made in this universe, only we will survive. Only we will be around for eternity. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, we arrive at the end of the story of this universe. So I'm going to kind of give away the end of the story of the Bible here. A little spoiler for you. Revelation 20, verse 11, God the Father shows up. For the first time in all his glory, he shows up here in this universe. And so this is the words of the Apostle John. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, that is God the Father, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So the end of the story of this universe is on some day in the future, we don't know exactly what day it's going to be, God is going to show up in all his glory for the first time in this universe. And when he does, this universe will go pop. It'll it'll be gone. It'll disintegrate from his presence. Everything will be gone. All galaxies will fade away. All stars, all planets will dissolve in an instant. That will be the end of of every rock, every tree, uh, every bird, every fish, every cow, every dog on this planet will be gone in an instant. There is only one thing out of all of creation that will endure through that day. Us, human beings, we alone out of all of creation are eternal. 
we alone make it through that day into eternity. And so God says, human beings are inherently, infinitely more valuable than the rest of the earth because we alone are eternal. When you care for a human being, when you provide for a person's physical needs, you are doing something of eternal value because that person will be around for eternity. That's why it is infinitely better to rescue a human being from death than to rescue a dog from death. Both are good, but one is better because only a human is eternal. So in God's value chain, humans are not like the rest of creation. We are infinitely more valuable than the rest of creation because we alone are made in the image of God and because we alone are eternal. That's why as we studied Genesis 1 and 2, what we learned about God's creation is that actually all of creation was designed to provide for us. That was the clear message of Genesis chapter 1. Each step in Genesis 1, each step of creation made earth more habitable for man. That was the point of Genesis 1. God was building a home for you. God was making a perfect place for humanity to live and thrive. So at the end of Genesis 1, when God has created Adam and Eve, he tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the whole earth with human beings. So when we look at the human population and we see that it has grown a lot and it is continuing to grow a lot and it is filling up the earth, that is not a bad thing. That's not something to feel guilty or ashamed about. That's how God intended humanity to work. He wanted us to fill this earth. That's why he made the earth for us to fill it, for us to uh, subdue all of it. The earth is meant to be our home. It's meant to provide for all of our needs. Now, it's probably wise to set aside some land that stays wild and undeveloped. That's just good land management. But we should not be worried or fearful about the fact that humanity continues to grow and fill the earth. That was God's intention from the very beginning. Earth was made to be our home, a home that provided for all of our needs. So at the end of Genesis 1, God gives us the plants to eat. Genesis 2, he plants a perfect, lush garden to provide for all of Adam's needs. Genesis 3... Adam blows it. We'll see that in a few weeks. Adam's going to blow it, get kicked out of the garden. But God is going to continue to provide for the needs of human beings through the resources of the earth. Genesis 9, he'll give mankind animals to eat for food. Deuteronomy 6, he'll give his people, the Israelites, a perfect land, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey to provide for all of their needs. Later in Deuteronomy, God describes that land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he tells the Israelites about this land that he is giving them to meet their needs. He says of it, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity and which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. What we see in that is that God gave the earth and its resources to humanity to use. He meant for us to harvest the resources of this earth for for the good of humanity. That's a good thing. Now, you've got to balance that with the first principle. It's not okay to harvest the earth in a way that is short-term, that is greedy, that is hasty, that does harm to the earth. But it is good. 
when we farm. It is good when we mine in a responsible way because God gave us the earth to provide for human needs. That was the design from the very beginning. And so these two principles fit together and help us to understand how we as children of God should understand the environment and think about our relationship to the environment. God wants us to hold both principles in hand. Number one, God cares deeply about the earth. And number two, he cares even more about humanity. And we should do the same. We should care for the earth and its creatures. We should care even more for humanity. So let's talk for a moment. I want to end by talking about application. How do we actually live these principles out? What does this look like to to hold these principles in wisdom and, and to live them out in a wise way for the world to see. Let me, let me walk you through an application. My basic idea as you think about how to apply these principles of good creation care, I want you to think good, better, best. As you think about the environment and our relationship to it, I want you to think good, better, best. God wants us to do that which is good. What's good is to care for non-human creation. To care for the earth and and all the plants and animals on it. God wants us to care for and care about all of that creation. And so, as we said before, Christians, as, as followers, as believers, as worshipers of the creator, we should be taking the lead on caring for his creation. I have heard Christians who've talked about the fact that humans matter more than creation, the fact that this creation is fading away and will come to an end, justifies just totally taking advantage of it and abusing it. You can do anything you want. No, that's not true. This creation, this planet, even though it's under the curse, it still belongs to God and we will be held responsible for how we treat it. So as God's people, we need to respect the land and the creatures on it. We need to treat them well. So uh, let's be the examples of how we care for creation wisely. Let's not just talk about it, let's do it. So let's get particular. As followers of God, we should be recycling. We, we really should. That's, that's just wise use of God's resources. Recycling is just wisdom applied to your material goods. So, so be a good steward of what God's given you. Recycle things. And we should be conserving energy. Again, that's just good, wise management of God's resources. Turn lights off when you leave the room. Buy a fuel-efficient vehicle and appliances. That's good use, wise use of what God has made. As God's children, we should... Dispose of our trash in responsible ways. Christians should never be guilty of littering, of burning tires, of pouring out toxic waste on their land because we believe it's God's land. It's not ours. Don't throw your junk on it. It's God's. So we should dispose of our trash. Well, uh, we should be involved in planting trees because after all, our father was the first tree planter. God was the first gardener, the first arborist. So let's join in what he's doing in making this world a more beautiful place. Trees are great. They're a brilliant design. They, they look good. They provide shade and they provide oxygen. They're, they're perfect. They reveal how good God is. So plant some trees. Finally, when you see an animal suffering, do what you can to alleviate that suffering. So it's good to volunteer in an animal shelter because God cares about those dogs and cats. He wants to alleviate their suffering. So care about the creatures that God has made. As Christians, it is good to act responsibly towards the earth, to care for the earth and its creatures. We are responsible to do that. So don't just talk about it, do it. Practice good respect, good management of the earth and its creatures. That's good, but that is not what's best. There is something even better than this that Christians should be doing. 
While it is good to care for non-human creation, biblically speaking, it is even better to provide for the physical needs of human beings. Because humans, remember, are infinitely more important to God than any other creature on earth. So as good as it is to care for the environment, it is even better to care for a human being, to provide for their physical needs. We are actually morally responsible to do that. God expects us to to make sacrifices to care for fellow human beings. So in the book of Isaiah, God is describing what true religious devotion looks like. What does it look like to truly walk with God? God says, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. So as good as it is to care for the environment, to do all those practical things for the earth and for the benefit of it, it is even better to care for physical needs of the people around you, to give food and clothing to the poor, to go work at Habitat for Humanity and build a house for somebody in need, to provide medical care and medicine for those who can't afford it themselves, to teach someone how to read and help them get a job, to to watch out for and deliver the vulnerable, the oppressed, widows, orphans, people like that. That is even better than caring for the environment because humans are eternal they're made in the image of God so good to care for the environment better to care for the physical needs of human beings but we still haven't gotten to that which is best the best use of our time the best use of our efforts is to provide for people's spiritual needs we believe that people are eternal so that means that every person who is living on the on the face of earth today, they will be around for eternity in one of two places. They will either be with God in the new heavens and the new earth forever, or they will be separated from God in a real place called hell forever. Because of that, because human beings are eternal, because the consequences of their relationship to God are eternal, the single best thing that we can do with our time and resources is to share with people the good news of the gospel. The the one and only message that can reconcile them with God and and bring them eternal life. So, So the most important thing you can do with your time is to go out and tell people that there is a creator who loves them. A creator who loves them so much that he sent his own son to die for their sins, to take the punishment they deserve and then rise from the dead, conquering sin and death on our behalf. And now that loving creator God offers to every person forgiveness and eternal life if they will simply say yes, if they will simply receive it in faith. The best thing you can do with your time and resources is to give that good news to people. So let me help you put this together. As you think about the good, better, and best, here is the principle that I want you to walk away with. We do the good and the better so we get a chance to do the best. That's wisdom applied to life. You do that which is good. You care for the environment and the creatures on this earth. You do that which is better. You care for people's physical and practical needs so that you have opportunity to do that which is best, to share the gospel with people. Practically speaking, here's what that looks like. You recycle and you volunteer in an animal shelter so that non-Christians can see that you care about the planet and the creatures on it. That's gonna make them more likely to listen to you when you tell them about Jesus. And you go volunteer at Habitat for Humanity and you give to the poor so that non-Christians can see that you care about people's physical needs. That will make them more likely to listen to you as you share the gospel. 
When Christians turn a blind eye to the needs of this planet and to people's physical needs, it turns people out, off. It, it tunes them out. They won't listen when we get around to what really matters. So do the good and do the better so that you have an opportunity to do that which is best. Now to do that, if you're gonna do the good and the better and the best, it's gonna require a sacrifice. None of this is easy. You gotta sacrifice time and effort and resources to care for the planet, to care for people's physical needs and to care for their spiritual needs. So let's go before the Lord and let's pray for his strength and willingness to make the sacrifices that are necessary to be examples of biblical wisdom to this world, to do the good, the better and the best. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the creator. We praise you and exalt you that with all power and wisdom and love that you made this universe, that you made this planet, that you made all life in it and that you created human beings, your image bearers. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that when we fell into sin, you did not give up on us, but you sent your own son to die for us and deliver us from sin and death. Father, we pray that your spirit would fill us. We pray that you would convict us and challenge us, that you would strengthen us and enable us to live wise lives, to live out this good, better, best in the sight of the world so that they will see how attractive you are. I pray, Father, help us as your children to care for your earth, to care for the planet you have made and and all the creatures on it. I pray that we would make sacrifices, that we would put forth the effort to be examples to the world of good stewardship of the earth. And I pray, Father, that we would make sacrifices to do that which is even better, that we would share our food with the hungry, that we would clothe the naked, that we would care for those in need. And I pray, Father, that we would be bold and courageous to do that which is best. That as you provide opportunities, that we would be faithful to speak the good news of the gospel. We pray, Father, that you would use Grace Bible Church, all the people who are here, to draw hundreds and thousands in our community to Jesus Christ. We pray that they would look at us and see us and see Jesus as attractive through what we do. I pray, Father, fill us with your spirit, strengthen us to obey you and honor you in all that we think, say, and do. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Brian will be back with you next week.